What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Mind Over Macros podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mike Milner, and today I was joined by a very special guest, Jess Durando, and we dug into mindset, which you all know is my favorite topic. Um, Jess actually created the mindset certification course that I took, so I was like incredibly excited for this interview, and it did not disappoint. She brought so much knowledge, and you guys are going to absolutely love this interview. And if you do, you know what to do about it. Just screenshot the episode, tag me and Jess on Instagram. I am at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner, and Jess is at Jess Durando. That's J-E-S-S-D-U-R-A-N-D-O. Enjoy the conversation. All right, guys, I am joined by a very special guest, Jess Durando. Hopefully I said that right. Um, And I appreciate you coming on. I'm super excited for this conversation because like myself, you are a fellow mindset ninja, which is like your wheelhouse. And that's kind of my bread and butter. Also, I could talk mindset for hours. So I'm very excited to have somebody like yourself on the show to bring your expertise and your knowledge to my listeners. So first of all, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I love that we can talk mindset so much. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the best place to start is going back through kind of your story, your journey, um, how you got into this industry and how you kind of found your passion and went down the path of mindset and then just kind of where, you know, how you got to where you are today. Awesome. Yeah. So my background is actually in clinical counseling. So I focused on mindset and the cognitive process, you know, for almost a decade. That's what my education's in, my bachelor's, my master's. And I worked as a therapist for almost nine years before I moved into the coaching space. So I feel like that was actually an advantage for me. I mean, once I moved into coaching, I looked at everything through the lens of everything is a mindset game and we have to examine mindset and be willing to see if we can make mindset related changes if we're going to be successful with any other sort of lifestyle change that we're going to make. So um, that's just something that I hold to be a pillar in what I do with people. Um, and so whenever somebody comes to me, whether it's that they want to you know, make nutritional changes or healthy habits or time management or whatever the case may be, everything is, well, where's your mindset at? What are the quality of your thoughts? What kind of self-sabotage behavior have we had going on in the past? Let's really examine where you are now and what your mindset looks like. So that way we can be that much more successful moving forward. Um, And yeah, it's just kind of the crux of all I do. Yeah, I love that. And I definitely want to get into some of those specifics. But first, I'm curious as to what the decision process was like when you kind of pivoted from clinical therapy into more nutrition coaching and fitness. And obviously, there's a lot of carryover because having that background is incredibly beneficial for your clients. But I'm just curious what that process was like for you to kind of pivot out of the clinical setting into more nutrition coaching. Yeah, I well, a lot of it was honestly because I hired a coach myself. And as I started making changes physically, I noticed my mental health improved. As I started making changes to my mindset, I was that much more successful with dieting, with lifestyle changes when I had hit brick walls before. I had a pretty disordered relationship with food when I was younger and just really always struggled to feel in control, which, you know, 
I know is more mindset than it is anything else. But I, I just became keenly aware of how connected our mind and our bodies are. And I was having clients come to me day in and day out. And we were doing all these really fancy therapeutic techniques, which are great. And they have a time and place. But nobody had ever really even examined what their lifestyle looked like. Like, what did their nutrition look like? Were they moving? Um, were they getting out in the sun? What did their support look like? Were they able to manage stress better? And and so the therapeutic techniques were helpful, but they just weren't the first step. And I just became really passionate about the fact that if we could really tackle those first steps and create a more solid foundation maybe some of the therapy wasn't even necessary for certain populations or when they did engage in therapy, they were that much more successful because we were taking a more holistic approach. Um, and we could give people wins right off the bat, you know, having them go out and move and hit a step goal or drink more water or have conversations with loved ones. Those were things that they could do and see success with overnight. And from a mindset perspective, having those wins builds confidence and it builds momentum and motivation. So I started connecting those dots at the time working in therapy. There's also a lot of red tape and insurance and grants and you, you know, limited numbers of sessions that you get with people, limited amount of people that you can reach. And so for me, it was the awareness of, Oh, I, I can help more. I can do more. I can, I can offer more than just planting seeds and hope that they grow. So it was a little bit scary, but a very clear shift for me to want to move more into the coaching space. Yeah, I think it's super important that, first of all, you were able to connect those dots and see that oftentimes we have the tendency to jump from like step zero to like step 50. And it's like, let's actually take people through this process of step one, getting that that win, like you said, the initial win, the initial buy-in. Um, and then sometimes we don't even need to get to any sort of advanced techniques. And it's like, let's just start with the basics. And I know it's not super exciting to talk about and people like they want to know like what's the magic and what's like this advanced technique that I've been missing and really it's probably just a lack of foundation and then going through that process of like layering things on top of you know we've, we've accomplished step one and now this is ingrained in you it's part of your lifestyle and now we can move to step two um, one of the things that just came up as you were kind of talking about your story is the fact that when we're kind of in this fitness space, I feel like oftentimes as coaches, there's this pressure to kind of look the part or act the part. And and then you coming from the clinical background of therapy, I'm almost wondering if the same kind of thought process or pressure or, or internal kind of um, just self-belief that you have to have like a rock solid mindset to be like, well, you know, because I do this, then I can't show that I struggle too. And, and this is something that actually my sister is a psychologist who treats eating disorders. And she talks about this openly very often. It's like, you know, sometimes we struggle too, even though we're the professional, that sort of thing. So I'm wondering um, what your experience was like, if you kind of felt as a mindset expert, as somebody who's coming from that background, if you feel like there was maybe additional pressure to like, look the part and feel like, you know, I have to to show my clients that I have, you know, the mindset of somebody who's been there and done that type of thing. I'm not sure if I'm, if that question is making sense, but um, I'm just curious as to your thoughts. Yeah, it does make sense. And it's a really good question. And for sure, there was definitely a time where I kind of had some imposter syndrome, like, 
who am I to be helping people with their mindset when my mindset isn't perfect? Or I would have days where I would kind of struggle with my relationship with food or body image or things like that. And then especially moving into the health and fitness space, that's, you know, a really different ball game. So I definitely had days that my mindset struggled. And I, I did kind of worry about that a little bit of, of being in the position that I was of coaching other people through their mindset. But part of it was also acknowledging, like practicing what I preach. The reality is nobody has a perfect mindset. And that's not the goal. The goal isn't to never have a bad day or never have self-doubt. The goal is to know what to do with it when that happens. The goal is to have the tools to know how to work through it. Um, And of course, we want those periods to be fewer and far between. But Nobody, nobody's got it right all the time, um, myself included. And I'm, I'm fortunate that I've got the awareness and the tools to have a healthier mindset more consistently. But A, that took time. B, I have my own counselors and coaches for a reason too, because we need somebody who can help us be objective about our journey. Um, and while when I coach other people, it's always about them, it's never about me, I actually find that the times that I struggle with my mindset make me a better coach because it allows me to be empathetic. It allows me to not minimize what they're going through. It allows me to know that when we're struggling with our mindset, all of those thoughts and all of those emotions that are really overwhelming are very valid and real at that time. And we need somebody who's been there to kind of walk alongside us and help us get through it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that the struggles that we go through, it does, it makes you more relatable. And like you said, more empathetic because, you know, I still, I still deal with mindset struggles all the time. And, and, you know, it's one of those things where when I'm communicating with the client, you know, it's, it helps to know exactly what they're going through, even though the situations might be a little bit different, but, um, you know, I've been there where I haven't felt good enough, where I've had, you know, self-sabotage or self-limiting beliefs. Um, one of the things that I find to be a, challenging skill um, that is super beneficial if you can get to the place of doing this. But but the idea of like, we are not our thoughts and being able to kind of take a step back and realize that we're kind of an observer or if we can get to the position of being an observer of these thoughts are real, they exist, um, and almost becoming objective in that perspective. Um, what is there a process that you have of trying to take people through when you have these negative thoughts, these limiting beliefs, when you're finding yourself thinking about, I'm not good enough, I can't do this, and you have this kind of fixed mindset, um, being able to kind of take a step back as the observer of those thoughts and not the identity of those thoughts? Yeah. So what I always say is thoughts are stories, not facts. And just kind of helping us remind that. We develop thoughts um, We think the same thing over time, and a lot of times it just becomes automatic, right? So the example that I typically use is a blinking yellow light. The minute you approach the blinking yellow light, you know what to do. You automatically have that thought of slow down, caution, you know, and and it's a built-in protective mechanism to have those automatic thoughts. The tricky thing becomes when those automatic thoughts aren't accurate or they don't serve us or they're not protecting us anymore. Um, But because we have this automatic thought like I'm not enough or I'm not attractive or I'm not worthy, 
we continue to feel emotions based on those thoughts. We continue to act and behave in a certain way based on those thoughts. And so it really skews our whole reality, all stemming from this one thought that was never accurate in the first place. So I, you know, I'm a big believer in like lots of tools in the toolbox. So it really depends on where a person's at in the process. But the main goal that we're looking to do is create more mindfulness. And that that comes from how do we become more aware of what your thoughts are? Can we be more aware of the stories that you're telling yourself? Are they accurate? Are they inaccurate? Um, can we work towards accepting them without judgment? Can we just sit with them even when they're uncomfortable? Can we kind of own it, accept it? Kind of like you said, have that passive observation where we can be as objective as possible. And then once we get there, can we start moving into taking action and creating new thoughts that better serve us? And that's kind of just like the 101 of creating cognitive change. Yeah. And I think obviously everybody's situation is different, but if we were to give kind of a practical example of where you would start somebody in that process if you started to identify, um, let's just say it's something like every time I try and eat more, I gain weight. And somebody who's kind of like in that chronic dieting mindset, somebody who has a fear of, you know, what the number on the scale is going to say and through past efforts, you know, and this was my reality too. So you could even use me as an example if you want, where, uh, you know, I was always kind of in that eat less, do more type of mindset and had this fear associated with if I eat more, the scale is going to go up and that's a negative thing. I don't want that. And it became um, almost like an obsessive type of behavior. Um, so like, what are some tools? You know, I, I think that just giving some practical examples will help. And I know obviously everybody's different, but you know, what's kind of like a starting point where you would start to kind of break down, all right, where are these thoughts coming from? And then what are like some practical tools that we can take away? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is any opportunity that we can, that we have as coaches to provide education to our clients on how the body works, how food actually works, things like that. I always believe like education brings empowerment because a lot of times we create this belief out of lack of knowledge or because something's really scary or we're fearful. So if we have the opportunity to like pull the curtain back and bring people out of the dark and really expose them to the truth of things, any sort of education that we can do on a mishelp belief, always first and foremost. But past that, you know, if we're, so if we, if we imagine a triangle and at one peak of the triangle is the word thoughts, another peak is feelings, another peak is behaviors. What we start to learn is situations occur that we don't have control over. We create some sort of a thought as a result of it. That thought impacts how we feel, how we feel impacts how we behave. And so really the, the first tool that we do is let's just get in there and look at the thoughts. You know, maybe a situation popped up. You, um, you heard from a coach that you needed to eat more food. That was a situation. And that initial thought that popped up was, oh my gosh, now I'm going to gain more weight, you know? And as a result of that thought, you started feeling really anxious and really fearful and really insecure. And because of those feelings, maybe you start self-sabotage, self-sabotaging or obsessing, or you don't stick to your plan or you say, well, if I've got to eat more then okay. And you eat all the food, you know, even out of plan. And as a result of that, that just kind of feeds those thoughts, um, it's like self-fulfilling prophecy. See, I told you I would gain weight or I wouldn't be successful. Um, so our main goal is how can we just think differently about the situation? Do you have proof that this thought is true? Do you have any evidence? Could you be making an assumption? Can we kind of reframe it? Can we just try something else on to think about the situation differently? You know, and then maybe the feelings start to shift or they're less intense. And then we can start 
start changing our behavior. So maybe that's not a simple tool, but that's kind of the main process of what I'm looking at with clients. For some people, that's really overwhelming. That's like much more in-depth one-on-one work. So sometimes if we're just looking for something faster, it's like, let's just focus on the behavior first. Let's start really small with one basic habit that you know that you can do and you can crush and you can feel successful in. And maybe it's a little bit different than what you did before. So maybe the behavior is, can we just try what your coach says for a week? And just test it and see if the scale goes up 50 pounds overnight because it won't. And now we're starting to create evidence to think differently about the situation. So ideally, I like to start with the thought. But if nothing else, like, let's just get in there and let's just try something new or crush some really basic habits that you can feel successful about and use that momentum to keep going forward. Yeah, that's perfect. And one of the things I I think that what you talked about as far as how that that cycle kind of manifests itself in, in thoughts to emotions to behaviors and it, and it keeps going kind of round and round. Um, one of the things is that oftentimes there's not just one single entry point to break that pattern, that we kind of have this ongoing feedback loop and we can interrupt it at any point in time. And sometimes it can be, like you said, the behavior. Sometimes it can be the thought. Sometimes it can be sitting back and, obje- and observing the emotions and just watching it pass by if you're somebody who can practice more of like a mindfulness or meditation and, and really just become an observer of your emotions and understand that they are fleeting that they will come and go and actually feeling that process happen can help you understand that this feeling that I have in this moment is not going to last me a lifetime even though when we're feeling it sometimes it you know it, we have that perception like this is going to be my forever state but if you can sit back and watch it pass then all of a sudden you have another tool in your toolbox and breaking that that pattern at any point in the cycle you know we can kind of Obviously, it depends on the individual, but we can kind of use different techniques to, to break that up at, at different points. Um, so you mentioned self-sabotage, and this is something that comes up a lot, um, almost in the sense that people try to grasp why they're self-sabotaging. I get this question probably more than anything else. It's like, I'm really good for three to four months, and then I just self-sabotage, and I don't understand why. Um, what's like some of the information gathering at that point that you would start to unpack to, to understand why somebody might be going through that behavior pattern? Well, the first thing I like to know is, is it actually self-sabotage? I think sometimes we label it this way and, and we beat up on ourselves like, oh, I failed again. I just self-sabotaged three to four months in. But really, it might be the result of the fact that they've been dieting for three to four months. They feel super restricted. They haven't really been clear about that. And then they have one off day. And, and it's more of a restrictive mentality than anything else. Um, and they they kind of eat all the food or feel like they go off the deep end or feel like they, quote, unquote, fall off the wagon. They label it as self-sabotage when really there could have been, that was their body telling them something and there could have been an opportunity to prevent that proactively from happening. So I always like to explore the context of that self-sabotage. If they really are, you know, sabotaging their ability to make progress, then I start to, typically self-sabotage comes from some sort of fear or some sort of anxiety. And so then we're really digging into what is so scary right now? You know, what are kind of the stories you're telling yourself? What is causing you to be so anxious? And like you said, 
we can enter that cycle at any point in time. The self-sabotage is the behavior piece. So sometimes people might not have the self-awareness to really identify the thought that they had that made them so uncomfortable. They just know that they were really anxious or really scared. And then we can focus on that feeling and try and bring the intensity down a little bit. And that's kind of like you talked about of meditation or coping skills or things like that. But it's recognizing self-sabotage is something that we all do. I think that it holds a lot of shame for people. People feel like they're failing. There's a lot of self-defeat around it. But again, if we can take some of the emotion out and just view it as a part of the process and an indicator that we've got an opportunity to change that cycle, um, to think differently, to feel in a way that's a little bit more positive and comfortable, and we can just go in at any point in the cycle and, and try and dig in a little bit deeper, I think that that's the best way to go about it. Yeah, one of the things you said that's so powerful is kind of framing it in a way that it might actually be your body responding exactly how it's supposed to. And sometimes like I'm obsessed with reframing. It's been like something that I have been researching more. And the more that I learn about it, the more I realize just how incredibly powerful it is. So somebody who has been super restrictive and then they end up binging, it's like, in their mind, it may feel like self-sabotage, but if you reframe that into your body is trying to keep you alive, it's trying to protect you, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing, all of a sudden you don't feel like something's wrong. Um, and just being able to take something, and you know, when we talk about mindset, we're really talking about our perceptions anyway, so being able to reframe that into a positive and then use that information to make a better decision moving forward so that it doesn't happen. Um, but I think that the power of, of reframing each situation, it gives you the opportunity to kind of like how you started um, this whole conversation about let's maybe just go with the basics first, because we might not need to just start practicing meditation and doing all these things. And somebody wants to, that's great, but I feel like that's more of an advanced strategy for somebody who's willing to put the time and effort in into setting aside time out of their day to meditate and, and, you know, go through that whole process if there's a base level entry point that we can start with um, just by reframing the context and then starting from the ground up, um, it's going to be more effective. So um, I wanted to get your perspective on what the basics look like. You talked about like, you know, seeing, um, being able to make progress without jumping to, to, you know, more therapeutic techniques or advanced techniques. For you, what does that look like as far as building a foundation or starting at the bottom and, and kind of the base level stuff that you want to work with clients on? Yeah. I mean, so before, sometimes even before we get into the whole cognitive process, our thoughts, all of that, I am looking at like, how in control do you feel in your day-to-day -day life? Do you feel in control of your choices? Do you not? Because feeling in control allows you to be more empowered. What does your social support look like? What does your stress look like? Are those things managed? Are you sleeping well? Because poor sleep has significant impacts on cognitive function and mood. What does the quality of your food look like? I mean, there's just so much gut health research coming out and about our neurotransmitters, which are our brain chemicals that, you know, help keep us happy and focused and all that. Um, like majority of our serotonin is actually produced in our gut, not our brain. So the food that we eat and the quality of it really impacts that. So before we even need to start changing the cognitive process, it's like, what, what are you doing for yourself physically? And is it working for you? What are you doing for yourself socially, spiritually, things like that? Um, and is it working for you? Because if it's not, 
or you feel like you're getting in your own way, or you even feel like you're doing everything right and you're still struggling, well, then let's dig a little bit deeper and let's start really exploring, you know, what stories are you telling yourself? How often are you getting in your own way? How often are you living in kind of this state of anxiety or this feeling of sadness? Let's dig deeper. But if we're looking at things in terms of hierarchy, sometimes some people notice significant benefits just from moving and drinking water and eating protein and vegetables. And that sounds really silly, especially for those of us who maybe are educated with nutrition or are really active or we're like, oh, we're so far past that. But I'll be honest, sometimes when I feel really off in my mindset, I'm like, oh man, I I haven't felt in control at all really of my food or I've missed the gym the last week because my kid was sick or work's been crazy. I mean, even no matter how proficient you are, there's always times that you're letting go of the basics because you get distracted or you're not as mindful. So it's like, let's start back there. That's doable. Those are quick wins where you can feel in control. And then we can always move into the cognitive piece as we go. Such an important thing to understand because I think in the fitness industry, we tend to have this myopic view of what health actually looks like. And it's very narrow focused on training and nutrition, which don't get me wrong, they matter, obviously. So like the you know, food quality matters and movement matters. But when we take a step back and we start to look at health as a whole, you start to realize that there's some consistencies amongst like the most fulfilled, the longest lived people in the world. They have strong community. They walk a lot. They eat quality foods, not a lot of processed foods. They get outside in nature. Um, they prioritize one-on-one relationships. You know, there's, there's these things that we start to realize that are outside of our little um, bubble of fitness uh, that impact health much more than just like, what are your macros type of thing. So I think it's important that when we talk about health, we're, we're looking at those things and including them in the process. So I'm curious how you kind of blend those together when you're working with clients who may be more focused on like, just tell me what I should eat and tell me how I should train. Um, and we want to take a step back and kind of look at health as this all encompassing sphere and, and kind of what that process looks like. If, you know, if I'm coming to you as a client who's like, you know, get me results and you're like, well, let's talk about your environment and your social support and these things that may not have been in their mind when they talk, when they think about their, you know, when their body composition or their health overall. So how do you kind of marry those things together? Yeah, I do try my best to blend them together because they're connected, right? I mean, people, people need the small wins sometimes to feel a little bit more confident and get the ball rolling. At the end of the day, though, like I can give you numbers all day long or tell you what to eat. You know, you can give somebody a training program all day long, but if they're not able to take action on it, if they're continually getting in their own way, if they're telling themselves, why bother? I'm never going to be successful. Then they're just plans, right? So we have to have both in order to be really successful. I mean, I'll be honest, most people come to me wanting the quick wins. They want the nutrition. They want, because it's more tangible, right? They can, they can see results in that faster. Whereas mindset, it's not as tangible and it takes more time. And a lot of times we're, we're discovering years of thoughts and beliefs that were inaccurate that got them to where they are now. Now, if we're willing to dig in there and we're really willing to reframe it and challenge some of those thoughts and see situations differently, well, then now we're going to really be successful with our nutrition or our training. But sometimes we've got to start where our clients are. And if starting them where they are and giving them those quick wins that helps them actually become invested in the process, but more importantly in themselves, means 
walking with them through nutrition and training first, then we start there. Um, I think most of the people who come to me at this point are like, I don't think that this is just about the food anymore. Like this is a mindset thing more than a food thing. And then that awareness gives us a cool opportunity to be like, awesome, let's do both. But in general, if, if I'm helping somebody with their eating, then while they're following their plan or they're making changes, I'm also asking, and how are you, what are your thoughts like when you're eating or around your day or how successful you feel like you are or you aren't, you know, how anxious are you day to day? Or are you feeling more present and grounded and happy? You know, what kind of action steps are you taking? So we're using food to help us walk through this cognitive process and dig in. Yeah, I love that. And I'm, I'm curious, just, just from experience, when, when you have a client who's not willing to open up about that stuff right off the bat, and uh, maybe they're kind of dodging that question, they're kind of more focused on, well, you know, I followed my plan, I got to the gym, I, you know, I ate on plan and all that is great. And, and you're asking like, how are your thoughts around that? And they're like, yeah, my thoughts were good. And they just kind of give you, you know, a basic uh, short answer that doesn't really get beneath the surface at all. Um, What's your kind of process for holding their hand through it without pushing too much because some people just have more of a wall up that they don't want to get vulnerable right off the bat. And obviously you have to develop that relationship, but I'm wondering if you have any kind of tools in your toolbox for going through that process of getting somebody who is more um, just reserved and more introverted. They're not ready to kind of share that stuff and, and getting to the point where you can start to uncover some of those stuff that might be going on below the surface. I mean, yeah, I tend to follow their lead. The reality is they came to me for a reason, whether it be mindset related, food, lifestyle related, they came to me for a reason. If, if they felt like they were crushing it on their own, they probably wouldn't have reached out and asked for help. And sometimes that might be as simple as accountability at first, but nine times out of 10, some sort of situation is going to come up where, where there's an underlying mindset issue there, whether it be, yeah, I've been crushing it for a month. And then Saturday I went out and it was like I blacked out. I don't even know what happened. And I just, I ate so much food and I woke up the morning, next morning and I was really beating up on myself, but don't worry, I'm back at it today. You know, for me, that's like instantly like, okay, that's a mindset thing. That's not a food thing. Can we educate on the fact of like one day off plan isn't really that big of a deal, but can we now use that as an example to be like, that's great that you're feeling more in control today, but I want to go back to Saturday night. Let's talk a little bit about what happened. Let's talk a little bit about how you felt Sunday morning. Sometimes it's, I'm, I'm on their journey with them and I'm here to facilitate it, but not to necessarily just follow my agenda when they're not ready to talk about it yet. But with everybody, myself included, something is going to happen that triggers a mindset block that they either do or don't know is there yet. And so then it's, my job to help them dig deeper into that, even if they're a little bit resistant, like, right, it's not sometimes what you say, but the way you say it, like, let's just dig into this a little bit deeper because next time this happens, because it will happen, I don't want you feeling so guilty or full of shame the next morning. Let's just kind of challenge this and see if we can make some changes. Um, I had one client who, one thing that she really struggled with was throwing food away. Um, and so it was kind of this repeat thing where we didn't really talk about mindset all the time, but 
every time she went out to eat and she brought leftovers home or every, like on her birthday, when her kids made her a birthday cake or whatever, she would just eat it, you know, for four days straight and feel awful. And we talked about it. Like maybe you just don't bring the leftovers home. Maybe you throw them away the next day, but she never followed through on that. And when we dug deeper and deeper, we were able to identify that just familial norms. She grew up in a house where they weren't allowed to waste food she was kind of a bad person if she did that and food was love. So if she threw away the birthday cake or kids made her, what would they think? Did they think that they, you know, she didn't love them. So all of these other stories start to pop up. If we're just willing to ask the questions and be like, where did that come from? Or tell me more about your hesitancy or, you know, I get it. I struggle throwing food away too, but I would just love to hear like, what kind of emotions does that bring up for you? Can we, can we dig a little bit deeper because when we get to the root of it, well, now we can address the root of it and create real change. Yeah. And I think that brings up a great point about how we oftentimes just think of food in terms of energy and fuel and nourishment. And it's everything in our culture. It's societal, it's emotional, it's connection, it's, you know, family, all these different, you know, contexts of food that we sometimes ignore when we're on this pursuit of health and fitness. We sometimes become very hyper-focused on just the one meaning of food, um, or it becomes a push and pull where it's like, well, I know that I need this quality food for nourishment, but at the same time, there's like the, the hedonistic value of food that is kind of like tugging. So it's like you have the angel and the devil on your shoulder, and one's telling you to eat quality food, and the other is telling you not to. Um, and I think that you know sometimes we forget that in certain contexts, it is okay and it is the healthiest thing for you to enjoy a piece of birthday cake and and not feel guilt or shame over that um so i'm wondering just like if you frame obviously uh you know you talked about the importance of of food quality and the impact that it has on on neurotransmitters and and our mood and you're speaking my language with that um something that i talk about extensively but there's also other contexts where your health can be prioritized by having a slice of pizza or by having a piece of cake or something like that. So, so how do you walk that, that balance and how do you kind of frame that for your clients? Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to make it more general because as you know, like it's always really client dependent of where they're at in their process. But the, the reality is if somebody continually has a really strong emotional relationship to food, and I was this person, right? Like every bite I ate warranted some sort of an emotional response. If it was healthy, like quote unquote clean, I was really proud, like, great, I'm doing the right thing, right? That was the narrative. If I had the birthday cake, even on my birthday cake, it's like, well, I'm cheating. So I felt a little guilty or whatever. So if we start adopting this idea of food is just food and providing the education of how it's fuel and how we have biological needs and how food quality, you know, matters. Um, but food can really just be like gas in the tank, if you will. Sometimes that's helpful for people who have a really strong emotional relationship with food because it reduces some of the emotion. But the reality is, especially for most of the clients I work with, we're not, we don't have to be strict. It doesn't have to be complicated if we don't want it to be. I've got some clients who are athletes, but majority of my clients are not elite athletes. Majority of my clients are not getting ready for physique shows. They are human beings who want to be healthy and want to thrive and feel their best and live long lives with their families. But they also want to like enjoy pizza night on a Sunday with their kids. And so at that point, then we're talking a lot about moderation and we're talking a lot about 
you know, balance and, and can we take like an 80, 20 rule? Can we focus on food is just food and food is fuel? And how can we fuel you in a way that allows you to live a long life and do the things you want, but restricting you and feeding that emotional piece of your relationship with food isn't always that beneficial either. So enjoy the pizza, enjoy the ice cream, enjoy the experience for what it is. You know, even the emotional process doesn't always have to be bad. Yeah, totally agree. And I'm curious your take on like trigger foods, quote unquote, trigger foods are like somebody says, you know what, I have these, you know, when I open up a bag of chips, it's just all bets are off. I kill the entire bag in one sitting. You know, everyone has kind of their one food that's like, you know, I, I just can't control myself around this food. And there seems to be kind of two schools of thought where you have the one camp that's like, just get it out of the house. Just don't even tempt yourself, get it out and problem solved. And then you have the other camp that's like, well, are you really going to go the rest of your life without ever eating that food? So you might as well try to work through that relationship and figure out a way to incorporate it in moderation. Maybe you account for it and, and set you know, a small serving and then put the bag away, whatever the case may be. It, it's typically one of those two things, unless um, you know, there's something that I'm not familiar with, but that's kind of what I hear most of the time. And I'm wondering where you stand as far as like trigger foods and how to work through that process. Yeah, I'm camp two. Like I want to be camp one to offer somebody like a fast fix. And I think if somebody is in a position where they just can't dig deeper yet, like they they don't feel like they can have any moderation around food, you know, it's like step one is just eliminate the trigger for a minute until we can reintroduce it. Um, then fine, clear out the fridge, clear out the pantry. Like if that's got to be step one, I'm not opposed to it. And maybe this is just like the therapist and me talking, but I'm just a big believer that if a trigger is popping up, it's popping up for a reason and we can keep putting the bandaid over it and we can keep avoiding it. Um, but what would happen if we leaned into it and how could that create different long-term success? So I'm all for giving people the quick wins and in this moment, short term, how can we help you feel a little bit more empowered? But I'm also here to play the long game. And the reality is you're going to go to a party that has potato chips. You're going to go to like, you know, a, an evening out with friends and somebody's going to order dessert. And I don't want you entering into a shame spiral because you decided to have some chips at a party. So if we need the quick fix first, just to get you open to this and allow us to start exploring it, that's fine. But I'm always playing the long game. And, and honestly, part of that is also having some self-awareness. Um, and I talk about this a lot with clients and in the mindset specialty course I taught is recognizing if we are more of an abstainer personality type, the person who's like, I have no self-control. I just need it out of the house completely. Or are we more of a moderator personality type? And I actually take my clients through like a flow chart and a checklist, to like help them figure it out because the first step is becoming aware of where we are in the process. The second step is, is that working for us? Some people are like, yeah, I like having no food in my house that triggers me. I like staying away from it altogether. That doesn't cause impairment in my life. That is that 100% works for me. And I'm like, cool, then that's what we do. Let's clean up fridge. Let's clean up freezer. Let's do it. But most people are like, you know what? I, I am an abstainer, but I think that I could have more food freedom in my life if I were able to become a moderator. If I was a person who could just have like a little chocolate a few times a week and not eat the whole bag in like a stressful, chaotic fit on a Sunday night. And so then we can start taking action steps to help transition people from abstaining to moderating in hopes that they have more freedom later on.
And what does that process look like? And I know it's going to be um, dependent on the individual, but if we can just kind of somebody who does have, you know, we'll use continue with the potato chip example. And they're just like, you know what, I, you know, I want to have a better relationship with potato chips. I want to be able to eat just a few on occasion, um, but I just can't seem to control myself. Where, how do we kind of walk them through that process of becoming okay with it? Yeah. So I try and like kind of blend a little bit of like exposure and mindfulness. So can we just start with having like, can we identify your trigger food and can we start having some of it in the house? Um, maybe even it's a smaller bag of potato chips and we just kind of start small and ease it. Maybe it's just like a little Ziploc baggie of potato chips that you'd take home from work or whatever. Can we start having it in the house and you starting to recognize that you're the one in, in control of it, in power? Because sometimes I think when people eliminate it completely and they don't want to be around it and they don't think about it, it becomes more and more powerful. It reiterates the narrative of like, I don't have control of this. This is bigger than me. And it's not, they're just potato chips. So can we do some work with you being exposed to it and us creating mantras or walking through situations or wherever, whatever, with you knowing that you can be around it and that you're powerful. And maybe can we even plan to have you have a few potato chips with dinner every night, like just start exposing you to it. But I also think a big piece of that puzzle is can we be mindful while you're doing it? Um, and I take my clients through a mindfulness activity where we eat a piece of food and we really hone in on all five senses during the eating process. We don't have distractions. They're sitting at a table. They're holding the food way longer in their mouth than they normally would. They're chewing way more times than they normally would. And they're savoring the experience. And I, I find one of two things happens. Either people are like, Ugh, like, I did not enjoy that nearly as much as I thought I did. And I normally would have been half a bag deep now. Or, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was delicious. But... I'm kind of good. I had a couple of them. I enjoyed it. I was mindful and I'm good because it's usually not about the food. It's about this mindless coping that tends to happen more than anything else. Yeah. And we are so in alignment because I actually have a whole nutritional mindfulness process that I take people through. And like nine times out of 10, it, that's the issue. It's just this lack of mindfulness. And it's so funny how many times you go through that process and they're like, you know what? These really weren't even that good. Like it's that, that thought process of like, oh, you think that you have this strong like desire for this food. And then all of a sudden you tune in and you actually pay attention. You're like, yeah, I could have done without that. That wasn't all that good. And it's just funny how many times that happens. So we're totally in alignment with that. Um, so I would be regretful if I didn't get into this conversation about um, because of your background and because of the way that diet culture and the diet industry is today, um, there has been a massive swing in the opposite direction of kind of like weight neutral approaches and not trying to manipulate your body weight, um, that health you know, should be something that everybody obviously has the ability to participate in health promoting behaviors. So, and then there's statistics about how many people try, I think it, at the last time I checked, it was something along the lines of 25% of people who attempt to diet end up with some form of disordered eating behaviors. So kind of coming from the clinical background that you have, but then also helping people with, you know, through the process of, of health and wellness and um, becoming a better version of themselves, like where do you stand and how do you, you know, kind of in this whole, I guess, I don't know, we'll call it this back and forth of people should be able to pursue better health. And if that means they want to manipulate their body weight and, and you know, lose some body fat and look better, that it's 
you know, those are their goals and nobody should be telling them how they can or can't look. And then on the other hand, you have the, you know, kind of weight neutral. Um, we're setting these people up for psychological damage if we go through this traditional process of dieting. Um, and there's obvious, like for me, there's, there's valid points on both sides. Um, I'm just curious kind of where you stand with your background. I'd be super curious to hear. Yeah, I tend to find in general, like as a society, everything seems to be very polarizing, like you're either one side or the other. And I'm just very much a gray area thing. And I think a lot of people are arguing different narratives. You know, the reality is whatever choice we make, the goal is that there not be shame attached to it. If somebody wants to diet and manipulate their body, awesome. If somebody doesn't, and they're really accepting of where they are, regardless of what weight they're at, awesome. I think that the judgment piece that continues to come in distorts everything. I think that we should all be empowered to make whatever decisions work best with our bodies. Um, and I, I think that the conversation of can we love ourselves at any size is a different conversation than should we diet or never diet? Because I have lots of clients, myself included, who feel very comfortable in their skins, skin and love their body and are happy with where they are now. But occasionally from time to time, want self-improvement. They want to see what their body is capable of in leaning out. They want to see what their body is capable of in a growth stage. And it's empowering to be able to manipulate food in a way that allows you to transform a little bit. But I think the tricky thing comes when people continually and chronically diet in hopes of filling some sort of emotional void or emotional wound to feel more worthy or more lovable. So my thought is, Yes, you can love yourself and still want self-improvement. You can come to me as a client wanting to diet without it meaning that you hate yourself and that you want to make changes. If you come to me with a lot of insecurities or struggles with body acceptance, then maybe we're looking at those things before we're just hopping from diet to diet. Um, but I, I do think that the, the tricky thing is that people become really dogmatic about a set diet. Like it's got to be keto. It's got to be macros. You've got to like, I had a client who was told the only way you can lose weight is to carb cycle, right? Like people, <laughs> people become really dogmatic and then they preach it. And so individuals who struggle with their body image, they hop from diet to diet, never considering the fact that if they've got a disordered relationship with food, maybe measuring and tracking every bite that you put into your mouth is going to trigger some of those distorted thoughts. But there are plenty of other ways that you can manage your nutrition that helps you get towards your goals without triggering some of those things and allows you to develop a healthier relationship with food. So I think, yeah, if we can not be so extreme about it and just kind of honor wherever everybody's at in their journey, um, and, and know that that's going to be different for everyone because everyone's relationship with food is really different. I love that answer. And once again, we are in complete agreement. One of like the analogy that I use is it's, it seems that these different camps and you know, the, this like dietary dogma, it's the equivalent of being like, all right, I support a hammer as the best tool for the job, no matter what, like regardless, we're just going to use a hammer on everything. If I want to screw in a screw, it's a hammer. If I want to saw a piece of wood, it's a hammer. Right. And like, we have all these tools in our toolbox. So it doesn't make sense to just be married to one philosophy. You know, for certain people, yeah, a weight neutral approach or intuitive eating is, is the best way to go. For other people, it's let's track macros. For other people, it's more habit-based and having the tools to understand what the right tool is for the right job. That I feel like that's where um, it just seems to not be 
the like sexy answer because everybody wants to be like a part of a group or they want to feel like very passionate about whatever stance they take. Uh, but it doesn't really do anybody any good if we become so dogmatic about, you know, what dietary approach is best or telling people how they should or shouldn't feel about their body weight. And I, I couldn't agree more about loving yourself as you are, but also pursuing self-improvement. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. And um, so I think just creating that awareness is so important. Um, I'm wondering, because you, you mentioned a good point about somebody who feels like obtaining a certain body weight is going to unlock some level of happiness or fulfillment. Um, that was my path for a long time. I always associated, I'll be happy when I hit X number on the scale. And then I would do it. And then I would push the goalpost back. And then I was like, well, that wasn't the right number. This is the right number. And I went down this path and um, never found the fulfillment I was looking for, even when I was at my lightest. Um, so what's like the process that you go through of helping somebody reach their goals if they have, you know, if they want to obtain a certain body weight or a certain body composition, but helping them understand that this may not be the source of fulfillment and happiness that you think it will be. Yeah. So that's actually a common question I ask a lot of my clients when they come to me and, and they identify, or I identify that there's some mindset related issues there with, with food and body image is I, I typically ask them, have you lost weight before? And nine times out of 10, they say yes. And they say, and did you love yourself then? And nine times out of 10, they say no. And so that allows us to open the door for the conversation of, okay, so maybe this was never about the food or maybe this was never about the body weight. So then what I acknowledge is these metrics that they're using to measure their success, body weight or whatever PR they hit at the gym or whatever, those metrics are probably based on some sort of goal that they've created because of external values. So for example, I care about how other people see me. I care about what I look like in a bathing suit. I care about what number I write down when I get my driver's license next month, right? Those are all external variables. I care about those things so much that I set goals. I need to have abs. I need to weigh X amount and I won't feel successful when I get there. And, and then it, like you said, it just becomes a never ending cycle because it was all based on external things in the first place. So then we start kind of going through and being like, can we start establishing some internal values of why do you want to do this for you? What do you feel is lacking in your life? What do you, what do you want to gain right now? Um, let's be as specific as possible. Let's create clear, measurable goals. And sometimes we can do that, but people don't know where to start. And it's just little things like, I make, my, which I feel like nobody will ever hire me after sharing this, but like I make people write down like little one sentence, three word sayings on a post-it and put it on their mirror. And that's complimentary of themselves. I love, I think I'm beautiful because whatever on a mirror and say it out loud to themselves every day for a week. You know, it's gratitude practice, setting intentions, celebrating wins, it sounds really, really cheesy, but there is study after study after study that proves that, you know, the, the neurons that wire to get fire together, wire together, fire together. So basically the patterns that we get into with our thinking, they create long-term habits. And so the more we think negatively about ourselves and the world around us, the more that that just becomes habitual for us. And we have the opportunity to break the cycle. And if we can create a habit of thinking kindly about ourselves and positively about our life and express gratitude to the world, well, then now new learning replaces old behavior. We've got an opportunity to think differently. 
Yeah, and there's two things that are super powerful about that. The first is that your intrinsic motivators are going to be more um, sustainable for carrying through the process and staying consistent. You know, there's, like you said, there's a lot of research out there that shows that intrinsic motivators are going to carry you through the process much more effectively than extrinsic motivators, which that doesn't mean you should eliminate all extrinsic motivation. If you want to hit a PR, if you want to, you know, have some sort of external motivator, it can help in the right context, but the foundation should be internal. Um, And then the second thing is the ability to literally rewire your brain. Um, I always use the analogy of like, when you have these negative thought patterns, it's like you're riding your bike over a, over a dirt path and you're riding that same trail over and over and over again. Every time that negative thought fires, it's just digging a deeper divot so that you're kind of ingrained in that, that path. And by literally pivoting to an affirmation or a positive thought or something that you're, you're repeating to yourself weekly, you're literally rerouting that, that bike trail and then you're starting to dig a new divot and hopefully you want that to be a positive one. So it's like the actual ability to rewire your brain. Um, and you know, I mean, there's just so much literature about neuroplasticity and our ability to become, you know, our thoughts and, and, um, it's, it's just a powerful thing and a powerful tool. So, um, even if it sounds woo woo or, or cheesy, there's legit evidence to back it up. And, and I've seen it firsthand in, in a number of clients. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where access to information right now, we have more information than we ever have before. And, you know, it's still the adherence piece, the mindset piece, the psychology. At the end of the day, that's where it, that's where it all comes back to, because it, it wasn't, lack of information like we previously thought because now you can look up anything you want on nutrition on metabolism on you know training whatever it's all there for you Um, the bottom line is what is going to work best for you and that's why having these conversations about mindset and um, you know our self-belief and disrupting some of those negative thought patterns is so important Um, so I do want to be respectful of your time and just and with one final question before I give you a chance to shout out where everyone can connect with you, um, what's your process for taking somebody who has more of a fixed mindset about what they can and can't do and feel like they don't have much control over their future and pivoting them to maybe establish more of a growth mindset and feel like, you know what, I do have more control than I thought. And just because of what happened in my past, that doesn't mean that that's going to happen in my future and, and trying to shift them from fixed to more growth mindset thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes if it's, if there's continual struggles regarding their past, I like to dig in there a little bit. We can go through different exercises. We can do timelines. We can, there's all sorts of stuff that we can do, but one of the key features of a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset is those with a fixed mindset view themselves as failures and they act out of that fear of failing. Whereas those with a growth mindset are more likely to see perceived failures as opportunity for growth and development and change. And the reality is when we when we operate or we're governed by that fear of failing that comes up for us day in and day out. And that's something that people really grasp onto and it it causes them a lot of anxiety. So if I'm wanting to help somebody start transitioning over to a growth mindset, that's really where we start. It's what what popped up today, what popped up this week where you felt like you failed. How can we reframe that? Are there other options here? How can we start thinking differently? What did you gain from it? Did you survive it? You know, starting to, did the world implode? Are you a terrible person? Like sometimes we have to get a little dramatic about it, but that's because 
our stories about failing can be really dramatic and inaccurate. And so sometimes it's like, let's just start with those perceived failures and, and explore how they can be opportunities for growth. Yep. That's a perfect place to wrap up because couldn't agree more. And uh, I'm, I love having these conversations. I could literally talk about mindset for hours, um, but I do unfortunately have a call to jump on. I also want to respect your time. So if you want to just give everybody an opportunity to connect with you and and tell them where they can find more about you and, and what you've got going on. Yeah, perfect. Um, so where I put up most of my free content is on Instagram. It's at Jess Durando. That's D-U-R-A-N-D-O. My website is happybellycoaching.com. I've got a blog there. I put up all stuff on mindset. I'm a pre and postnatal coach, motherhood, nutrition, business, all of that. Um, you can also sign up for my email list there too. And I try and get lots of great content out for that. Um, and I've got lots of fun stuff coming with a little bit more of a focus on mindset and motherhood. I think that could be a whole different conversation for another day. Um, and then obviously the programs that I do with helping to improve relationship with food and all of the information is usually between Instagram, my email list and, and my website. It can all be found there. Awesome. And I really appreciate you coming on and we'll have to schedule a round two very soon so we can continue this conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. You too.